Welcome to Faith at Work. I'm Carl Grant, and today's podcast will feature the 2003 high-tech prayer breakfast in the D.C. metro area where Philip Merrick was a speaker. Good morning. Thank you, Hooks. Well, that that bit about being humble, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but things have been kind of tough in the enterprise software industry. So over the last three years, it's it's actually been somewhat easier to be humble in this industry. (laughs) And in fact, last year when I first heard about the high-tech prayer breakfast, I thought, well, given the state the industry is in, seems like a good idea to have a prayer breakfast. (laughs) And the second year, I was asked to speak here. Now, I have a Methodist upbringing, although I didn't come to Christ until a good time later, and lots of Anglo-Saxon DNA. So while over the years I've got comfortable speaking to relatively large audiences, the idea of sharing my faith so publicly is something that, well, let's say it takes it a little bit outside of my comfort zone. But the book that's in front of you the New Testament, suggests that I should take a different view on that and share my faith. And that's what I'm going to do for the next little while. Tell you a little bit about how I came to my faith in Christ and share maybe a little bit about how that has worked itself out in my business life. So for every Christian, there's a strong story, a testimony about how he came to our belief in Christ. And there's a a wonderful variety in these stories. In my case, it, it can be a little bit embarrassing because, well, there was a woman involved who is not currently my wife. But being a 26 year old Australian here in Washington, D.C., I think the Lord realized that that was probably the easiest way of reaching out to me at that time. (laughs) At this point, though, I'm very, very grateful for what that woman did because she led me to the church where I came to my faith in Jesus Christ and where ultimately I met my wife, Karen, who is also my business partner, co-founder of the company, and mother of our two wonderful sons. Rather than taking you through a blow-by-blow of what happened, when it happened, as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that really the bigger part of the story was what was going on in my head, what was going on in my mind and my heart over the course of what wound up being a period of several years. Now, as a non-Christian, particularly one with a training in science and mathematics, I was somebody who walked around with some very, very fixed ideas about why I could not and should not believe in God. And it turns out that these 
beliefs were stumbling blocks or obstacles to me becoming a believer. And through that initial introduction to the church and to the faith, one by one, those obstacles, those stumbling blocks were knocked down. So what I thought I'd do is share with you what they were for me. Your mileage will vary. What they were for me and how they came to be broken down by God as I drew closer to Him. Well, for somebody with a science training, the first thing that I had to get past was that in the beginning stuff that's in the front of every Bible. The Genesis story. What some people refer to as the creation myth. That couldn't possibly square with everything that I had understood about the universe and its origins. Evolution and so on. Couldn't reconcile those things. But I was really wanting to get to know this woman a little bit better, and so I actually, I actually did something extremely radical that I really hadn't done before. I started reading the Bible. I was surprised. Didn't particularly want to admit it, but I was surprised. Because as I read through that first part of Genesis... I have to confess, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a physicist, but this is what worked for me. But as I read through that first chapter of Genesis, I realized that there was actually a remarkable correspondence with what I had learned about the origins of the universe. This thing called the Big Bang. In Big Bang Theory, the first thing that happens is something is created out of nothing. And in the book of Genesis, the first thing that happens is something created out of nothing. What was the second thing? In Big Bang Theory, according to the physicists, after something was created out of nothing, that tiny, tiny piece of, of matter and energy, well... It exploded, and the thing that happened at the point of that explosion was electromagnetic radiation came about. Well, what's electromagnetic radiation? Light. And God said, let there be light. Yeah. One of the things that has stayed with me over the years from my, my college years, a wonderful poster that was pinned up in the computer science department of the University of Melbourne. And I think it was trying to demonstrate the power of some Unix photo typesetting software or something geeky like that. But at the top, it had, and God said. And then all of these extremely dense equations, and at the bottom, and there was light. And I looked at that the first time I saw it, I thought, I know what they are. Maxwell's equations for propagation of electromagnetic radiation in a vacuum. And God said, and there was light. And now that I'm a believer, that for me speaks to this wonderful 
correspondence between what we understand about the universe and what is there in that Genesis account. And as you dig more into this, you realize that these things maybe do come together somehow. So now, folks looking at the fossil record tell us that instead of there being this continuous evolution, there were these great bursts of creativity. Great bursts where many, many species came upon the earth. And something that helped put all of this in perspective for me as I was starting to read the Bible more was a verse that I came across in Second Peter, and a version of it is also in the Psalms. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That, for me, seemed to be the key. Those days in Genesis might have been like a thousand years. But a literal thousand years? Well, if you search through the Bible looking for that expression, thousand years, it's used throughout to denote an incomprehensibly long period of time. So that was the first obstacle, which led into the second obstacle, which I was starting to gnaw away at. Surely the Bible, the whole Bible, can't be literally true, can it? Well, my own view, which is by no means unique, is that the Bible is something that was written for all people through all generations. And it was designed to speak to a farm laborer, a nuclear physicist, everybody in between. That's why we don't find Maxwell's equations and theories of relativity in the book of Genesis. I've also come to believe that the word of God is, is the main thing we have today in terms of a body of evidence. And it's a, it's a slippery slope to say, well, we're going to believe this piece, but not this piece. And it seems to me it's better to accept it as the word of God and just accept that there are pieces that at various point in times we're not going to fully understand. But there'll be a day when everything is revealed to us. Again, as I was reading more and more, I got into the book of John, the Gospel of John, and discovered that there's actually this wonderful connection between the Word of God and the coming of Christ. It's another in the beginning. It's chapter 1, verse 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And later in verse 14... The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, if you're ever wondering where to start with that book that's been placed on your table, my own personal recommendation is you start with the book of John. Aside of anything else, it's just beautiful literature. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So that leads us into obstacle number three. Did Christ really exist? Was he the son of God? Wasn't he just a great teacher? Many of you probably heard that before. Believers, non-believers alike, many 
of us accept that this person named Jesus Christ did walk the earth. But not sure I can get to that idea that he was the son of God. I'm really trying to understand what's going on. A book that really helped me, a book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. If there's one book other than the Bible that you read, I think you might like to make it Mere Christianity, in my personal view. C.S. Lewis, you might know, was a contemporary of Tolkien at Oxford, wrote his own series called the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you might have read that to your children. During the height of the Blitz in London, he went on the radio, on the BBC, and maybe to comfort the British in a very dark hour, he talked about Christianity, and he boiled it down to just what the basic message is, and called it Mere Christianity, and that's now available to us as a book. And in Mere Christianity, he takes this question on, head on, and and just has a wonderful approach to it. It goes something like this. Jesus Christ is who he said he was, or he was a lunatic. And we're not really given any option to choose something nice and convenient in the middle, as in, he was a great teacher. You just have to read any of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, take a pick, Take a look at what he actually did and said. He went around saying he was the son of God. He went around saying, I'm going to be killed. But don't worry, I'll be raised from the dead in three days. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably not the kind of person I want teaching my children. (laughs) Can you imagine our reaction if somebody who was not who they said they was, started talking like that. So either he was who he said he was, or he was a lunatic. There there isn't any middle ground. Unfortunately, inconveniently, if you're trying to work this out in your head and not come to what we think is the answer, there's, there's no wiggle room that's been left in that argument. Obstacle number four, can't I just get to heaven by being a good person and doing good things in the community. I think that's something else that, as a non-Christian, I I certainly latched onto. Hey, maybe I can avoid all of that eternal damnation and hell and all of that by just being a really nice guy, doing lots of good things. Well, in that New Testament, you'll find a lot of letters from the Apostle Paul to the different early churches. And in many of those letters, Paul says that we're justified by faith and and not by works. Seems a little counterintuitive. But if you believe in Christ, you'll want to serve him and his people, and so you'll do those good works but you don't get there, you don't get that ticket to heaven just by doing the good works. Let me come to one of my favorite obstacles as I look back on this. 
So let's say I buy into all of this. Aren't I going to have to check my intellect at the door? And I remember that I used to have this view that Christians were really a bunch of really nice people, but just something wasn't quite right. A little bit intellectually defective. Some of you who came along to this breakfast might be thinking, you know, that person that brought you along, really nice guy, but something not quite right. But I'm a little curious, so maybe I'll go along to this breakfast thing. Well, when I came to Washington, I was exposed to some exceedingly bright economists, lawyers, people working in politics, and I had to concede that not only did they appear to believe in this Christianity thing, they also seemed to be a whole lot smarter than I was. So that argument kind of went out the window. Which brought me to number six. Why do I need God? Why do I need Jesus? In this town, in this industry, I think we all feel we're pretty much self-sufficient. We, we have good jobs, we have nice houses, nice families, kids go to nice schools, and we're able to stay clear of calamity. Until one day, when we realize that we can't avoid calamity, or one day when we realize we can't avoid this thing called sin. In my own case, when I found myself alone in Washington, D.C., I, I realized that my actions and behavior in the past had caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. And having to face that alone was not pleasant. Certainly wasn't the worst thing you could be asked to endure, but it wasn't pleasant. And I think it's at times like these that... And Kim really spoke to this. There really must be something more than just what we perceive in this world. There's got to be something beyond that horizon. And so it was this line of thinking that really softened my heart and got me closer to being able to, at least intellectually, think about entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But... That led me to the next objection, which went something like this. You know, it seems like there's just a whole lot of stuff around this Christianity thing. I'm going to have to, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to start thinking a whole lot of new stuff. I'm going to have to stop doing some things that I was doing before. I'm going to have to adopt some attitudes that... Maybe I'm not comfortable with. And, you know, maybe I'll have to even become a teetotaler and stop drinking. I love wine. And like many Christian wine lovers, I frequently point to that first miracle that Christ did. <laughs> At the wedding in Cana, 
And for those of you who, who haven't read that, Jesus literally turns the water into wine. Now, one of the things that I wonder about is, what would that have tasted like? Created by Jesus. It have to be pretty good. Well, how good? You know, I'm not certain about this, but I think about the closest thing you're going to get on this earth today is Australian Shiraz. More importantly than that topic, there are a lot of things that people, both Christians and non-Christians, like to put around Christianity, like to load it up with. I really love the title that C.S. Lewis chose for that book, Mere Christianity. What's, what's the core? What's the core message? Some of those things that people put around Christianity make sense. Some of them, in my view, make less sense. But that core message at the center is, is pretty simple. It goes like this. God loves us, but there is sin in the world, and we are sinners. But because God loved us so much, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And Jesus took away our sins by dying on the cross. And that allows us to have a relationship with God that includes everlasting life in heaven. And that's pretty much the basic message of Christianity. That's the core. Now, what I've related to you is all stuff that was happening up here, happening in my head as I'm trying to reason things out. And for me, that was important. But more important is what happens in here. You can't get there by completely intellectual arguments. If, like me initially, you're looking for a way of logically arriving at the conclusion that God exists, God loves you, Jesus came to take away your sins, probably not going to get there. Because... There's this last little thing that's required, which people quite literally call the leap of faith. And for me, it happened sitting one Sunday morning while I was on a business trip, sitting in a church in Austin, Texas, and communion was about to be served. And the preacher at this church did a particularly effective job of saying that communion, the water and the wine representing the blood and body of Christ Jesus, that was for people who believed. And so if you're going to come up, probably want to be sure that things are straight in your heart. And for me, for whatever reason, that was enough. And at that point, I asked Jesus into my heart. Now, at that time, did, at that precise instant, did I see lots of bright lights going off and, and have a spectacularly warm feeling in my heart? No, it didn't work that way. 
for me. But slowly but surely, over the coming weeks, certain events and certain people showed me that Christ was going to work in my life. Although today I'm far from perfect and it's definitely still a work in progress, unfortunately. But the saving knowledge of Christ is what keeps me going on this journey. That brings me to where I am today. I find myself being a tech company CEO through what we might describe as having been the best of times and the worst of times. A lot of people have come up to me over the years and have said, well, you're a Christian, you're a believer in this kind of position. How does that work in your daily business life? How do you reconcile your faith with this? Isn't there always a a gray area? I've got to say that for me, things from an ethical and a moral perspective have always been pretty much black and white since I came to Christ. And I'm not so sure that these gray areas in business really exist, at least on a moral and an ethical plane. I'll give you an example. When Web Methods was interviewing bankers in a process that's lovingly referred to as the bake-off, interviewing bankers to take our company public, there were a few banks, they'll remain nameless, where almost right after the banking team had been through our offices, I'd get a phone call at my desk from a broker at that bank saying, Mr. Merrick, delighted to let you know that we've opened up an account in your name. Don't worry, you don't have to do anything. And oh, by the way, there's a really hot IPO happening tomorrow and we're going to go dump a whole bunch of shares in that account and unless you tell us otherwise, we'll, we'll uh, spin them out of the account and you know, you'll have a nice nice wad of money there by the end of the day. So I'd politely ask them to close the account. (laughs) Hadn't authorized that. And it just seemed to me that it was really hard to differentiate that from a bribe for our business. What is tough, though, is working through the impact of decisions that you make in the management team and realizing the impact that that can have on people's lives. As the downturn hit in 2001, like many enterprise software companies, like all enterprise software companies, we realized that we simply had too many people on the payroll and we wouldn't be able to support all of them. Realizing the impact that would have on the lives, the families, of the people who work for us who are affected, that that was really tough. But I don't think that there's this, this ethical gray area in business that creates a struggle for believers. Now, it has been, I must say, difficult to, to run a venture-backed and now publicly held company as an overtly Christian company. And, and we don't do that at Web Methods. Although, it would be really fun in a company meeting to do that Blues Brothers thing and just get up and say, we're on a mission from God. (laughs) We don't do that, but 
our management team does work to instill values and integrity across the company. And we all subscribe to the golden rule, which you find in Matthew chapter 7, also in Luke. I think you know this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turns out this is a wonderful simplifying concept in business. You want your people to relate to customers the way that they want to be treated as customers themselves. Everybody's a customer. Everybody's an employee. Everybody works for somebody. I get to work for nine people called our board. At our company, we also believe that we've got four sets of constituents that we work for. Our customers, our shareholders, our staff members, and the community that we live and work in. And that led to the creation of our foundation. And we don't think that serving these interests creates conflict over the long term. Well, maybe it doesn't work that great for some of those hedge funds in New York, but, well, let's just say we run our business for long-term shareholders. Coming back to my central message, Jesus can and does transform people's lives. I just saw the most wonderful example of this over the summer. Karen and I actually saw it together, and it was in a place that you really wouldn't expect to see this. It was on television. Now, I, I love music. I always have all kinds of music. I'm particularly partial to the singers and bands that I grew up with in the 70s and 80s, I'll confess. One gentleman in particular I always loved, Warren Zevon. Some of you might have heard of him. You might remember he was the gentleman who wrote about werewolves of London, well-manicured, well-groomed, well-dressed werewolves wreaking havoc in the streets of London. He also wrote many, many, many wonderful and highly intelligent songs, but a good number of them, we'd have to say, were pretty twisted. One in particular talks about a headless mercenary roving through Africa seeking revenge. Now, after you become a Christian, it's fairly difficult to reconcile listening to this music anymore. Uh, well, about 15 months ago, Warren Zevon was diagnosed as having lung cancer. He'd had a very, very troubled life been an alcoholic, drug addict, and this led to this twisted streak in his songs. But when he learned that he had lung cancer, he set out to do a few things. He appeared on The Letterman Show one last time. He resolved he was going to make a new album with his buddies, and folks like Bruce Springsteen and The Eagles all made time to record with Warren Zevon one last time in the studio. The album's called The Wind. I remember reading an interview 
I think it was in Rolling Stone. And in the interview, the interviewer asked, you know, you've, you've got this death sentence. You must have thought about life after death. Don't you have questions about that? And he responded, no, I've become a Christian. There was a wonderful special on VH1 that showed the making of this album and showed his final days. And in every scene of this documentary, there's a crucifix very, very prominently shown on his chest. Now, the interviewer, for whatever reason, didn't choose to go into a lot of detail. But I know that his life at the end was transformed. He passed away in September of this year. He got to see his grandchildren born. He came to a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. He also got to see his final album go to the number one slot on Amazon.com, which unfortunately probably proves what they say about death and artists. What's the central message of, of Christianity then? What, what should your response be? What should our response be? Oh, well, you can pray. You can try asking Jesus into your heart and let him go to work on transforming you. Let me just leave you with a few verses from the New Testament that sum up what I've been trying to say here. First, John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm sure many of you have heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Thank you. I hope this has been helpful for you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Faith at Work Radio. And for more information on the High Tech Prayer Breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You have been listening to Faith at Work with Carl Grant. 